the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, questions about what we believe as Christians and why we believe it. We'll do the best that we can. You need only to call us. You can do that by dialing 210-340-9585. That's our main number, 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free by dialing 877 630 KSLR. Numerically, that's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use your free KSLR mobile app. Uh, There's only one button banner. It says call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time. Our main number is 340-9585. Don't have a lot to talk about today because it's Friday, but let me just mention that we do have something special going on here tonight at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I will not be teaching tonight, but I will be ordaining a new pastor, Ellis Goins is going to be planting a church uh, on uh, August 4th, actually. It will be the very first Sunday on the northwest side of town, far northwest side, the Alamo Ranch area. And he is uh, going to be ordained tonight, and he will be teaching tonight, and you will be blessed. You can watch it live at calvaryessay.com at 7 o'clock, or you can join us uh, in person if you'd like to do that. You know, um, it's always... A little anticlimactic when these kind of things happen. This has been about, and I'm saying about because I, I have a hard time remembering long ago dates, but this is the fulfillment for me of about a 12-year promise from God. Um, all those years ago, he put this part of town uh, on my heart, gave me a burden for the people over there, and um, you know, I, we, we've started to do this two or three different times. At one point, I thought I would even be driving over there on Sundays and doing a message over there. And, and our, of course, our multiple services here as well. But that wasn't practical. So uh, we just waited until God raised up the right man and his wife. And uh, that's what he's done. So imagine how excited I am. Twelve years or so, we've been praying for the people on the far northwest side of San Antonio, and uh, I'm thrilled. God always keeps his promises, and this is one of those times. So we're going to be doing that tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Let me get to the questions that have sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one is actually an anonymous caller called into the studio last uh, earlier this week when Pastor Ken was here, and as I was looking through the questions that were given, this one is really, really sort of stuck in my heart. Uh, the, the anonymous caller asked, how can I know I won't lose my salvation as a Christian? 
And um, I don't know how Pastor Ken answered. I wasn't able to listen to the show when we were in California. Uh, but this is one of those things. The enemy is always trying to get us to doubt the faithfulness of God. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's God. He began the work. He's the faithful one. Whenever you have those thoughts, those doubts, you have to recognize that they're from the enemy. And then let me tell you the number one way, anonymous, that you can be sure you won't lose your salvation. Just be with Jesus. Jesus says it this way, abide in me and I will abide in you. And there's no one who is abiding ever in Christ. By that I mean just be with him. That's all it is. When you're with him, when you're in his presence, then there's no question about losing your salvation. You're too busy enjoying the fact that you are saved. And these are the kind of things that the Lord really, really wants us to hold on to by faith, regardless of what's going on in our life, regardless of how we may feel. These are the promises of God. God has given us, Ephesians 1.14 says, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, Anonymous, if I guarantee your inheritance, that promise isn't very good because I have no power nor authority to guarantee anything. But this is God who deposited the Holy Spirit in you upon conversion as a guarantee. In other words, what you've been promised, you will receive. And God promised that we're going to make it to the end. And I think the primary reason there are so many Christians out there who doubt their salvation who or who are afraid that they're going to blow it and lose their salvation is simply because they don't know the word of God, they don't hold on to the promises of God, and they're simply unable to walk by faith. What that means now, I've got to tell you something for me, and it's just personal story. I've been saved for 28 years, a little over 28 years now. And I've never had a single moment's doubt in 28 years that I belonged to Jesus, that I was going to heaven. It made sense to me when he said that he gave me that promise. And then I considered, even from the very beginning as a brand new Christian, and then I considered how faithful God is to keep his promises. He's faithful when I'm faithless. It just never made any sense to entertain any doubts. I've got doubts about a lot of things, but my position in Christ isn't one of them. And I think that's the place Jesus wants all of us to be. Always imagine, and Jesus is a human. He's not like me and he's not like you, but he's a human being. He's also God. But imagine how deeply hurting it is to him when we who have been given this deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, how hurting it is when we doubt that he's going to keep his promise. If Jesus were human like me, he'd say, well, for everything I've done for you, this is the thanks I get. But Anonymous, whenever I see questions like this, I want you to know my heart hurts because people are striving unnecessarily. They're anxious unnecessarily. There's a lot of things that we can do to break fellowship with God. But if you're really His, then He's the one who promised. So that's how you can be sure. You abide in Christ, He will abide in you. And I'll finish by saying this, there's no one who's ever been abiding in Christ that doubted their salvation for one minute. And in fact, I will say this, if you're doubting your salvation, it's because you've moved away from that fellowship with Jesus. You've involved yourself in other things. I'm doing a message this Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, the first, I think, 14 verses of Luke chapter 16. And it's so easy, Jesus says in that parable, it's so easy to lose focus on what's important to to lose our sense of what's a real priority in our lives. And when we lose that priority, then we sort of wander. 
Jesus says, come to me and let him give you rest. Rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Rest in the promise that he loves you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. And then you can rest in the knowledge that if you leave him, he's made it easy for us to get back to him. So anonymous, um, I'm sure Pastor Ken answered that much better than I did, but that's uh, that was on my heart as soon as I saw the question. Let's go to other questions. Here's one from Brad. Pastor Ron, how would you answer someone who thinks the Can- Canaan campaign was God-inspired genocide? Well, Brad, the first thing I would tell somebody who thought that is, is I would tell them, you don't know who God is. God is holy, God is just, God isn't capable of committing these kind of crimes or these kind of sins. God is love. And I would want them to know that the opportunity to meet this God of love is available to them. This is always the kind of question that somebody on the outside looking in asks. This is somebody who not only doesn't know the character, the nature of God, but they have no relationship with him at all. Now, it is also true that many times when people ask these kind of questions, they're looking for reasons not to believe. Brad, let me suggest this. If you knew the history of the Canaan campaign, about seven years is what that campaign took under under Joshua. Those were people that God had been waiting for for over 400 years to come to repentance. They all knew that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was really God. They all knew that. When God delivered his people from Egypt, the whole world knew that Moses' God really was God. But that didn't cause them to turn to God. They continued to worship false gods. The reason people worship false gods then and now, by the way, Brian, I'm sorry, Brad, is because they uh, they want to keep sinning. And if you have a false god, whatever it is, we don't make idols and statues anymore, but whatever your god is, your god allows you to do what you want to do instead of telling you, no, you have to do what God wants you to do. 400 years, God waited for them to repent. And they refused. This was a righteous judgment from a holy God at just the right time. God knows when our sin quotient is full. God knows when a people are beyond their ability to return to him. And God judges. By the way, this is what's going to happen at the rapture of the church. God is going to rapture his church from this planet and then judgment is going to break out. And, and, and you know, um, two-thirds of the world's population is going to suffer and die. It's judgment for rejecting God. And there's two other things I want you to think about. If you read some history on the Canaan peoples, you're going to find out that they did unspeakably horrible things. I've had people say, well, why would God order the children to be killed? They're innocent. Well, the Canaanites, all of the people in the land of Canaan, they offered their own children and sacrificed to Molech. They didn't worry about their children. So when judgment came, judgment fell upon all of them. One other thing I want to talk about here, Brad. Consider for a moment God killing children. At the end of Joshua, God didn't do it himself, but at the end of Joshua, all of those children, as was the case in Nineveh, God said to Jonah, I have 120,000 Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, these are kids. And God wanted to have mercy on them, wanted to give them a chance. And for an entire generation those kids grew up to worship God, to serve him. Now, after 
generations had gone by, they'd forgotten again. But for 80 years, after God spared Nineveh, the Assyrians turned to God. There was a revival. And even today, if children suffer horrible death and they're not accountable to know what they've done and to know that Jesus Christ is the answer, children go directly in the presence of God. So, really, he was judging by death the men and the women, the adults, and he was actually sparing the children. So, Brad, I hope that makes sense to you, but the real issue here is that anybody who would think that, sometimes they put Christians on the defensive with questions like this. We don't need to be afraid of this. But anybody who would ask that question clearly doesn't know anything about the character and nature of God. 340-9585, Anonymous says... Is it possible to love your wife too much and end up making her an idol? I don't think so. I think that we can um, make our wives the focus of our attention instead of making Jesus the focus of our attention. That is sin, and we would need to sort of make a course correction. But Anonymous, the Bible says to love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Is it even possible for Jesus to love his church, you and me, too much? So the answer is no. In fact, in loving your wife that much, you're witnessing of Jesus. And you're doing exactly what the Lord has told you to do in loving your wife. So no, love her too much. Just don't make her the center of your attention. You make Jesus the center of your attention, he'll give you plenty left over for her. In fact, when you then love her, you'll be loving her with the heart that he's given you. You'll be loving her with all of his strength and with all of his might. And that's what he wants us to do. So it's not possible to love your wife too much. It is, however, I think possible to make a relationship of any type an idol. Anytime you find yourself more involved with a human than you are with Jesus, then you're in a dangerous place. So you keep loving your wife. It's not too much. But understand the only way you can love her, the way Jesus wants her to be loved, holiness, with all of your soul, is to love Jesus that much. Anonymous, I tell people here at our church all the time, I bet I've said this a hundred times over our 24 years here, if, if not more, that Jesus has to come before any human relationship. He's got to be more important to us than our spouses, than our children. He's got to be more important to us than our careers and our hobbies. He's got to be more important to us. And we've got to love him more than anything or anyone. And when we do that, believe me, you're going to have plenty of power with which to love your wife. And that's what every wife wants. It's what every wife needs, a man who loves Jesus with all of his heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Believe me, if you love Jesus, if you obey Jesus, your wife is going to be the beneficiary of that love. Good question. Thanks very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from Malcolm. He says, John 3, 5 confuses me. Can you tell me what Jesus meant? Uh, let me read it, Malcolm, and then we'll um, talk about it. This is, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Well, all you have to do is go to the next verse, and Jesus explains exactly what he means. The next verse says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So what he's saying, born of water, is the natural birth. That's just humans, the way humans have been giving birth forever. Uh, probably a reference 
to uh, the water that breaks uh, just prior to the birth, but this is uh, figuratively, this is Jesus simply saying, the first requirement is you've got to be born. You've got to be a human being born, and then the Spirit gives life. That describes the born-again experience. So born once, you die twice. Born twice, you die once and only physically. That's what he's saying. So uh, the flesh is the reference of born of water. That's a natural childbirth. And uh, being born of the Spirit is simply a reference to uh, what Jesus will say later in this passage in just a couple of verses, in fact, to uh, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Being born once is enough. Remember when he told Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit of that tree uh, with the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And because he said that, they didn't die instantly, physically. But at that moment, all mankind died spiritually. And that's why it's necessary to have the second birth. You must be born again. He tells that to Nicodemus, the most religious man in Israel at the time, the the, the man who he described with a definite article, you are Israel's teacher, the preeminent teacher of Israel. Um, You must be born again. That's what the Spirit does, gives birth, uh, the second birth to us. So, Malcolm, it's not difficult. It's only... um, Confusing, I think, because sometimes the the, uh, the the metaphor, the water, is born of the word. Um, but that's not what Jesus is speaking to here. And as he usually does, he answers his own statement and gives clarity to the meaning. Here's a question from Ruth. Can you please talk about ecumenical movements? I have a friend who thinks we should lay aside doctrinal differences and be united as one, because Jesus told us to. You know, Ruth, um, yeah, I, I'll be happy to talk about this. Uh, but when Jesus said, I pray that they will be one as we are one, he's talking about one with the Father in their perfect unity. Yeah, he would like the body of Christ to be one in unity. But he also says in his word that no doubt there must be differences among you. There's a whole bunch of people that are ministered to in, in different ways. We're all unique. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I teach the word. I think I teach it fairly simply and straightforwardly. Uh, but the truth is that not everybody can listen to me. I'm too direct for some. I'm certainly not exciting. I'm not a guy with a big style and going to entertain people. I am not a yeller under any circumstances. I've never, ever one time raised my voice in preaching a message. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's not who I am. Jesus isn't mad at anybody. Actually, Ruth had somebody come to me one time and say, Pastor Ron, you're putting me to sleep. I need people to yell at me to make me really afraid so I'll serve God. I told him, if you need that to serve the Lord, then there's something wrong with your walk with with, with him. So the idea of the ecumenical movement um, is 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 not going to foster unity for sure because what the ecumenical movement has done in this country is stripped away the truth. So uh, I stand in opposition to let's just get along so that the world sees that we love one another. That's not how we love one another. We don't lay aside essential doctrines. Now we can have differences of opinion in in non-essentials. You know, whether tongues are for today, um, um, the, the timing of the rapture of the church, or even if there is a rapture of the church, we can have differences in those areas. Um, but what we can have is differences in essential Christian doctrines. Jesus is fully God and fully man. God is one God in three persons. We have to understand those are essential doctrines. Jesus was born of a virgin. His father was our father in heaven. We know that because he was without sin. So those are essential doctrines of our faith. I would add, not everybody would agree with me, Ruth, but I would add that that our view of the scripture is, is 
our Bible the Word of God, or is it just a, a book that tells us about God? Is it the truth and the whole truth, or does it just contain some truth? Those are differences. And I think the major flaw in the ecumenical movement is they long ago threw away the Bible as the final authority, God's word, the final authority. And then they end up doing whatever they want to do. Tradition takes place as the authority, which really gives us permission to do what we want. So uh, I think laying aside doctrinal differences uh, for the sake of unity creates disunity. I've watched entire denominations throw away the Bible as the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, and they just die. So, yeah, that's the best I can do, but it's not something that we who are Christians should be involved in. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your calls. The phones have been quiet, 340-9585, or toll-free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final half hour of the week 340-9585 if you have any questions or comments we'd love to hear them let me go to our next question that's been sent in this is a question from patrick uh, Pastor Ron, can you explain 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20? Uh, yeah, Patrick, let me do that. Let me read the passage for our audience. Verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Um, Patrick, I know your question is really, I get this question quite a bit about the, the last two verses in that, but, but let's just take a moment to savor verse 18. The righteous God died for unrighteous mankind, and he did it to bring us to God. As if to put an exclamation point on the gift. He was killed physically, but made alive by the Spirit of God. I love that promise because you see the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, the fact that they killed him and he didn't stay dead, validates everything that we believe. When we Christians tell people that, you know, only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven, people get offended. They think we're arrogant. But the truth is that we're the only faith on earth, the only religious group on earth that can validate our claim to heaven. Muhammad didn't die and come back to life. Buddha didn't die and come back to life. No other religious leader ever, Joseph Smith, died and stayed dead. Confucius died and stayed dead, but not Jesus. I mean, if you think about Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, that's an amazing statement. And it is indeed arrogant if he didn't prove that he was God and had the authority to make that claim. So sometimes we just pass by that first part of this passage and think, well, we all know that, but it's an amazing thing. They killed him and he didn't say dead. Now, your question is about the message that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, who were they? What message did he preach? Well, who they were is simple. They disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So there's a specific audience. It isn't just all of the unrighteous dead who were in 
what we call Hades or the abyss or Abraham's bosom, the, 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 the compartment uh, across from Luke chapter 16, the apartment across from, from paradise. What he did is he vindicated Noah's preaching. Peter also will say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, faithful. And so Jesus' audience was those people who refused to listen to Noah. And when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth to set the captives free, now the captives he set free are those who were in Abraham's bosom. He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 16, it's where uh, um, uh, Lazarus, uh, the poor beggar, uh, was found in paradise. Jesus went to set them free. And by setting them free, even though paradise is a wonderful place, he took them in his train or they followed him to heaven because now the, the way to heaven had been prepared for them. He didn't give them a second chance to be saved. That's not, he wasn't telling them, believe and you'll be saved. What he was telling them is declaring victory. Noah, my servant, told you that judgment was going to come, and it's come. Noah told you that every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Now is that time. And you chose not to believe. You chose to reject me in life, so now you will reject me for eternity. So yes, he did go in that place. He did preach a message, but it wasn't a salvation message. It was a victory declaration over the last enemy. The last enemy is death. I want you to think about something, Patrick, because I find this fascinating to consider. Imagine what it was like. And we know the angels in heaven long to look on the things going on earth, but the people in paradise, certainly the people in torment in the other compartment in the abyss, they had no knowledge of what was going on. Can you imagine how the earth began to shake as Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth? Can you imagine the light that would have emanated from his appearing? Now, I'm just guessing, but in paradise there was light. Paradise is paradise. But in the other compartment where people were in agony, the rich man was in agony and torment in this fire, he said. It would have been darkness. And there would have been just light for the victory declaration. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah to have Jesus personally vindicate him? Can you imagine all of those Hebrews chapter 11 heroes who were in paradise who believed even though they never received the promises of God? Can you imagine what that moment was like for them? I always think about what it's going to be like that instantly we're raptured. Will there be a like a nanosecond of confusion or fear? What's going on? And then we're going to see him. And we'll be in his presence having received the goal of our salvation. That's another favorite term of Peter's. Well, I think that's what it was like that day when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. At just the right time, Jesus died. God died for the ungodly. That's us. So, Patrick, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Here is a question from Seth. Good question, too. Uh, Pastor Ron, how can there be no suffering in heaven when we know people we love are not going to be there? Uh, Seth, the answer to that question is uh, impossible for us to comprehend. Um, There will be a whole new order of things. The old is gone, the new has come. Can you imagine that's true on earth? How much more when we're in heaven in the presence of the Lord? When we get to heaven, I think... Because God is going to wipe away every tear. Heaven, there'll be nothing impure. Heaven, there'll be 
no sadness, only the greatest joy imaginable. And here's what I think, and I don't know how it's going to happen. God can do it any way he wants to, but I think he's going to sort of just wipe our brains. And any knowledge of those who are going to suffer forever is going to be gone. We're going to be transfixed looking at him. So it's a whole new order of things. That doesn't make sense to people on earth. But when the old order of things is completely done, then it's replaced by nothing but perfection, nothing but beauty. And we won't remember. I don't know, Seth, whether you saw the the movie that came out sometime, I think, last year on the Apostle Paul. Um, There were great scenes. You know, Paul was was always beset, at least in the movie. Uh, He was beset by nightmares of the people that he had killed or the people that he had thrown in prison, the families. Um, The people that that were were disrupted when, when Paul persecuted them. Uh, and and at the very end of the movie, when he went into heaven, those very people were there to welcome him. And it was nothing but pure joy, pure love. So again, the old order of things best way. Now, I don't know that that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. That's sort of movie license. But here's what I know, that there's going to be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. There'll be just Jesus and we will be experiencing in person what Nehemiah described when he said, in his presence is the fullness of joy. So Seth, that's the answer the best we can do this side of heaven. Let's go to our phones now. We've had a a caller come in. Let's go to Jimmy calling on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, Yes. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and it's talking about the, the ruler of the airways. Um, that's Satan, isn't it? Yep. The little G of this earth. And, and the people that are, are watching all this ugly stuff and everything, and uh, he's talking about the, the ones who are disobedient, right? Yeah, Jimmy. In context, what he's what he's doing, he's setting up uh, the, the 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 wonderful gift of of God. But when we get to chapter two, verse eight through ten, he talks about the basis of salvation, and he starts out by saying, "As for you, Jimmy, as for you, Pastor Ron, you were dead in your transgressions, transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air." the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now that's pretty bleak if you stop there. But the next verse begins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So the idea is that we were... Um, even when we would deny it, Jimmy, before we met Christ, we were controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan, a little G God, who is at work now in the lives of all who are disobedient. So um, chapter two in the book of Ephesians is, is the greatest rescue mission of all time. And we are guaranteed that we no longer have to be controlled by the enemy. In fact, Paul writes to the church at Rome that we're no longer uh, under his dominion. We're no longer slaves to sin, but instead we're slaves to righteousness. So you have a question about that, Jimmy? No, no, that I, I was like, I was reading it and I said, this is very interesting. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, this is very interesting because this is what, you know, we have all this technology now that mm-hmm. and it's everywhere and we have access to it. And it's you know it's more prevalent than ever before. But I was going to tell you. Um, oh, I dropped out of that thing, that program, because I was I was telling them that salvation is very important, and I don't understand how you can be healed without Jesus Christ as your Savior. And they're like, 
well, it's not a, it's not a salvation ministry. But I don't understand, man. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> but, you're right, Jimmy. You know, if, it, if it's not a salvation ministry, it's not a ministry at all. Well, I, I guess I, my wife tells me it's because you know too much. You, you, you're, you're growing in the Word of God, so you... So this is why you're <clears throat> this is why you're questioning them. That's why. Yeah, yeah but you know, J- Jimmy, I'd say I'd say you know it's impossible to know too much about the Word of God, and then then yeah. what you can do is is explain you're going to make them an object of your ministry because you want them to be saved. I mean, that's oh, the point. Yeah. You know, uh, in the sixth verse of Philemon, it says. I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you have a full, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. That means the man and the woman in Christ. Now I'm talking to He's talking to Christians. The man and the woman who's not sharing their faith doesn't get everything that we have in Christ. They, 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 they are settling for less than God's best. And when Paul prays that we'd be active in sharing our faith, we make people like that, though they may frustrate us, uh, we make people like that the object of our ministry. And remember, our ministry is to make converts and then make disciples um, uh, in the process of, of, of the work the Holy Spirit is going to do. But honestly, it's, it's, um, there's no value at all in any sort of a ministry that doesn't have as its focus winning the loss to Christ. Oh yeah, and that that, for, that really makes me sad. Yeah. And, See, that's that's. that's hey, I'm uh, ask you, when is the retreat? When is the men's retreat? I think it's September twenty second. Okay. My my so producer's I know when looking. To sign up. Yeah, well, you can sign up. Uh, I think any time in August, uh, Jimmy. Okay. But the men's retreat is going to be September. I think the twenty second through the twenty. Oh, September 19th is when it starts. So uh, the 19th through the 21st, that's Thursday through Saturday. So I can put it for my vacation. Okay, thanks. Yep, you do it, Jimmy. Thank you very, very much. Okay, God bless you. Bye-bye. You too. God bless, my friend. You know, for the audience, Jimmy calls um, uh, not as much as he used to call, but he's been a regular caller on the program for a long time. We've watched Jimmy's heart change so much. Over the years, that's what God, the Holy Spirit, does when we surrender our heart. One more thing, and then I'll go to the phones. You know, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, which is really our, our, our liberty in Christ. If, if it only had, to, I mean, if you, if you were out and you only found three verses, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, you'd think there's no hope. But then you'd find the rest of it, and you're going to find out just how easy God made it for us to be saved. Let's go to our call. Let's go to Donald calling from San Antonio online too. Donald, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, good afternoon. I'm in agreement with you. Um, there was a commentary I go from uh, Daniel Sattel, S-I-T-T-E-L on Google. The caption corruption too. You drive the last 20 minutes. Of yeah, time. Donald. Thank you. Let's. We're going to cut. You, we're going to cut you off. We're going to cut you off. Uh, producer at the sta- station. <laughs> Uh, today he's Donald, other times he just makes up names. And I have no earthly idea why he keeps trying to get through and and uh, what his message is, but um, unfortunately he does get through. Maybe he just has too much time on his hands. 340-9585. Um, Dwayne asks, how can we interpret Genesis 1 and 2 when it seems like modern science contradicts the creation account? Um, Dwayne, there's only one way to interpret Genesis 1-2, and that's literally. It is either true or it is not true. And when we stop holding on to the literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, we've sacrificed our entire faith so here's the thing you've got to decide. Are you going to believe modern science? Which keeps changing its mind, by the way. Remember when climate change was global warming? And then it got cold and the temperatures extremely so. And then they changed their mind in mid 
sentences. So, so well, well, it's not just global warming, it's climate change. Um, and, and then the world has latched down to that. Well, remember, science begins with their understanding, their insistence, really, that there is no God. So we open the Bible that says, in the beginning, God, either we believe that or we don't believe it. But Dwayne, one of the things you have to understand is to throw away the literal interpretation of Genesis. Is to lose every major doctrine. Essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 either are literally true or they're not. Adam and Eve were literally the first two people ever on earth made by the hand of God directly by the hand of God or they weren't and if they weren't then we got a real problem because Jesus said they were and if Jesus can lie to us then he's not holy God he's just a man who lived and conned a bunch of people so Dwayne I think this is something every one of us as Christians has to deal with we've had evolution or big bang theories or primordial ooze theories crammed down our throats from our time in school. We've got to decide what's true. Do we believe God? Or do we believe science? And if you make the choice to believe science, you end up in compromise. What do you do when science changes again? And again and again. So we accept the literal interpretation, a six-day creation, six 24-hour days, the morning and the evening, day one, the morning and the evening, day two. It's To me, Dwayne, as the Holy Spirit has gone out of his way to make sure that we can't misunderstand, and yet we do. And sadly, when I talk about compromise, this is one of the areas where Christians are the most compromised. In order to fit in an evolution theory or in order to fit in an earth that's millions, if not billions of years old, in order to fit in um, all of the, the Big Bang theories of Stephen Hawking and others, we compromise our faith. And we do so because we're somehow impressed by the intellect of men who say there's no God. All the while our Bible says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. The, the Hebrew word for fool is a word in Latin we get our word moron from. And frankly, there's a lot of people with really great intellect, and I'm grateful that God made really smart people. My producer and I were just talking before the, the program. Um, um, brilliant people are so important. And God blesses them with that intellect. And they do a lot of good for humanity. But if that intellect doesn't lead them to God, then it becomes a curse. So, Dwayne, the only way we can interpret Genesis is literally, if you don't do that, then you're going to end up in compromise one way or another. hope that helps. I think we have time for one more question today. Let me see. Here's one I can do from Lucy. Pastor on, I believe for a long time that saints were a special category of Christian. Is that true? And how does someone become a saint? Um, Lucy, every Christian is a saint. If you look at Paul's epistles, the introductions, uh, he greets the saints who are in Christ, the saints who are in Ephesus, the saints in Philippi, the saints in Corinth. He, he addresses them specifically. The saints are those of us who are born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand what you mean. You probably come from a Catholic background or a, an Orthodox background where where sainthood is conferred upon certain people for uh, supposedly great miracles that they've done, that is so contrary to the teaching of Scripture. That is nothing but uh, Catholic or Orthodox tradition. So there are no saints. You know, we have referred to St. Paul or St. Peter or St. Matthew. Um, 
we're every bit as much a saint as they are. So the way you become a saint, Lucy, is to be born again. If you are born again, then you are a saint. Not in the special category sense that people can venerate you or offer prayers to you, but in the sense that we've been called out by Jesus. We're sanctified. And that's what sainthood is. So in your time of prayer, you can talk to the Lord and realize that you are Saint Lucy. I'm Saint Ron. I like the sound of that. But saints are not a special category of Christian, but all Christians are in that special category. I hope that makes sense to you. So Lucy, that's what we can do. One minute. Do I have a really quick question? Um... Here's a quick one I could do. Jason says, the Bible says a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Can that mean that our six-day creation was 6,000 years or even more? Jason, the answer to that question is no. Uh, Peter, when he talks about the Lord's patience, is just saying God's not in a hurry. You can't mix the metaphors at all. So, um, no, our six-day creation was not 6,000 years or more. It was literal six twenty-four hour days. Hey, we're done for the week. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, we're going to um, ordain Pastor Ellis Goins tonight. Keep him and his family, Killian and his wife, in prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back at 4 o'clock on Monday on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.